and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, Anna Tashinsky, and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in a particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Andy. My fact is that the man who invented the underwater ejector seat once broke his tailbone in six places while testing the system on the ground rather than in the water. <laughs> what an idiot. Yeah. This was a bike called uh, John Rawlins. Yeah. It was very eminent. Um, well, I didn't know about him. He, I, I was at a comedy gig a few weeks ago and the comedian started talking to the guy next to me in the audience. And this guy started talking about how he was either reading about or related to the man who invented the underwater ejector seat. And the comedian <laughs> just loved it. it. just made hay with it. Did just he? Had a whale of a time. Had he yeah. been speaking to you previously? He said, he said, anything's better than that guy. And he just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they spoke for ages, actually. That's um, so amazing. <laughs> wow. What but a heckle. He, <laughs> he just mentioned Sir John Rawlins, and I thought, underwater ejector seat? I've never heard of that. No, I don't think of that as something that has been invented, in fact. Right. And Sir John Rawlins. You was... would be gutted, actually, Anna, if you invented the underwater ejector seat, which you would reasonably assume hasn't been invented yet. Yeah. yeah. to find out about this. I've drawn up a lot of patents. I was about to apply. <laughs> this yeah. is devastating. Yeah. But it's for, it is for planes. But it's for underwater planes. Yeah. So, no, well, no, no, no. It's, it's for planes that have crashed and gone underwater. Yeah. Underwater, underwater planes. Underwater Sorry. Planes. Yes, yeah. yes. So it basically, it works sort of, if a pilot is unconscious and the plane is sinking, it'll, it'll pop out the pilot uh, without the pilot needing to do anything. So that's very clever. Why not pop him out? prior to hitting the water and sinking like a i would argue an ejector seat is built to do i suppose the plane is thinking maybe he's maybe he's all right the plane is thinking yeah thinking. maybe he's still he, he or she will pull this round and then the plane goes into the water and the plane realizes i better step in okay i think it's usually the pilot that presses the ejector seat button or pulls the lever i'm not sure the is. sentient plane has been invented yet well, to in do this that. case in this case it's automatic right? yes once it hits water um, but i think what happens is often if you're trying to land your plane you want to land it rather than eject because mm. then you can save the plane yep. you can land planes on water as yep. we've seen Sully landed there absolutely on the hudson mm. uh, maybe you try and do it but then you don't get it quite right and you start sinking mm. okay yeah. also it's dangerous to eject when you're too close to the ground anyway like if you look at the survival rates of ejection under a certain altitude yeah it's a lot lower so you know if you're too close to the water if you're just coming into land you get into trouble mm. but they yeah. are they're amazing because okay let's say you were parachuting out of a of a regular plane and it was too low altitude yeah. the parachute wouldn't be able to get the grip and and so you would plummet and die mm. but ejector seats are actually designed so that you can eject from a plane while it's on the ground and survive Yes, the rates are low. I didn't know that you could Absolutely. do that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Working on like what it can propel you up it high. It propels enough. you up high enough, and the parachute works, and that's that's what they're there designed are some, to do. Like not all of them do that, I think. No, no, but, but you can do that. Though, yeah, you which can. Is amazing. You, and you actually, and this was available in the eighties. I'm sure we'll get onto Rollins in a minute, um, but this was in the eighties. There was a Soviet pilot, and he was flying down. And his um, plane had rolled, and so the cockpit was now facing towards the ground. Oh, no. And he was only a few feet from the ground. Whoa. <laughs> like, he was like, I don't know how many, but it was like, let's say, less, definitely less than 50 feet away okay. from the ground. But he's facing downwards, right? He, he did. Yeah. He pressed the ejector seat, <laughs> fired him towards the ground. Everyone thought, 
he's a gunner, obviously, yeah. in a, like almost in a cartoon way. Did they but, go and look at the twenty feet deep hole that had been drilled <laughs> into the ground? Can we, by can his can head? we guess? But yeah, go on. Marshmallow factory. It's always a marshmallow factory. <laughs> yeah, or a mattress factory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just a bit further. Just gotta get directly <laughs> over the old pillow mountain. Oh no, it's the broken glass factory. <laughs> uh, no, they had like an auto gyroscope yeah. system in their seat. So as it pushed you out, it knew which way was up and then it could fire rocket boosters which took him in the right direction away from the ground. And the amazing thing was that no one knew about this. It was Soviet technology and the Americans didn't know about it and Europeans didn't know about it. And it was live on television or it was shown on television. So everyone thought he was dead. And then suddenly when he survived, everyone was like, holy shit, how did that happen? Yeah, that's amazing. So they thought he was dead when he ejected, but then they saw him (laughs) spin around and go back up in the air. I think they, they thought he was dead everyone's eyes kind of followed the wreckage oh. and then they turned back and he was ta-da yeah <laughs> what a trick so cool that's amazing quickly back on the uh the original character in this john yeah. rawlins so sir john rawlins mm. amazing character uh, sir john stewart peeps rawlins Pete's Rollins because he was a descendant of Pete. Yeah. yeah. Pretty cool. Direct descendant, yeah. apparently. I couldn't find the family tree. But his father was also hugely decorated um, as a military person. He's, he comes from huge stock and he designed the first protective helmets using composite materials. He advised the British Standards Institute on how to make motorcycle helmets, cycling helmets, horse riding helmets, racing helmets. So a lot of the helmets we wear today very very slightly thanks to That's some of cool. his research so cool isn't it yeah. I, this is interesting about Rawlins because I have often wondered before why are all these helmets different you know horse riding and cycling mm. it's going to be very similar if you mm. fall off head first right. mm. bet the same helmet will do it but do you think John just wanted to make us an extra buck by it would just, just look so stupid diversifying wearing a bike helmet on a horse well one of my cycle helmets never seen looks it. a lot like a horse helmet doesn't it you know that orange one that I wear it does it yeah. does I, I don't look stupid Andy do no. I no no no, no. <laughs> um, I was trying to read more about the underwater ejector. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Are we saying ejection seat? I think Eject this is like four. a. I think this is like a detector's detectorist's thing. Yes, right. Where we'll get lots of letters saying it's an ejection seat. Um, I've seen lots of people saying ejection. I saw seat. a few things online saying ejection. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep saying it. Ejector. And then if you want to contact James individually for saying ejector, we'll just duke it out. And I'm going fine. off the James Bond. Name. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. would call it an ejector seat, wouldn't he? He absolutely would. But that's that's Bond for you. Such a maverick. <laughs> no one dares complain with Bond. Yeah. Um, but I was reading about someone who ejected in 1954, which was just before Rawlins invented the underwater ejection seat. Yeah. Um, and it was off an aircraft carrier, British aircraft carrier, right? And they, their their plane uh, was a thing called the Westland Wyvern, right? You know, Wyvern is a mythical yeah. dragony creature. Get this, mm. it had folding wings. There are these pictures of all the planes on the aircraft carrier and their wings just halfway across just fold up like elbows. Okay. Wow. I've like a table seen... tennis table. Exactly. exactly what to do like through, that. What, like to fly through um, some mountain, <laughs> close <laughs> mountains. That's exactly what it's all. Right. <laughs> that's, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Everyone breathe in. We're going through two mountains. Um, no, it's to stash them on the decks of aircraft carriers. Uh, you can store uh, five yeah. planes where you could only store two if they had their wings out. But honestly, I've never seen it before. The wings literally halfway, halfway along. They just fold up. Like a butterfly. Amazing. Or a finger. In fact, they do. They had two joints. 
they're two joints in them, so it is exactly like a finger. Just if you crook your finger in that creepy way. Oh that's yeah. What the wings do. All right. Well, creepy they should have done it. Close your finger. <laughs> Why didn't they do it like a butterfly? That would take up much less space. Good yeah, point. you could Good have point. folded it right up. Do like, it at yeah. the shoulder. Yeah. Mm. Not the elbow, you idiots. <laughs> <laughs> so I th- I thought that the only underwater ejection seats were ejection seats that were used underwater, having not been intended for it. Uh, because that does seem to happen. And I was reading a blog of a guy called Russ Pearson. who Did you read about him? This was 1969. And hmm. he ejected in the Pacific off the coast of California from an ejector seat underwater. So he, he'd crash landed. I mean, it sounds like he, he definitely said, I thought I was definitely going to die. Because yeah. obviously I was 20 feet underwater. I was sinking incredibly fast. Ooh, wow. I just pressed pressed a button and hoped for the best. <laughs> it broke his back at the time. But I don't. I think he was too panicked to notice while he was underwater. And somehow, I think there was a boat suddenly which turned a light on in the distance, which told him where the surface was. So he managed to swim up to the surface. But he said the worst thing about ejecting underwater in an ejector seat is what do you have to have on you that automatically is applied when you eject from a plane in the air? Oxygen. Uh, actually, oxygen is one thing. Lip balm. What's applied to I you? Haven't, I haven't phrased this very well, and I can understand <laughs> the errors, but I'm talking about a parachute. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. So it ejects you with a parachute. He made it up to the surface, but then the parachute just pulled him oh. down and down again. Oh, no. So he's just up there with a broken back parachute pulling him down. And, and then he said he felt something on his feet, and he thought, that's a shark. And so he tried to find his shark repellent, which for some reason he was carrying in his pocket. <laughs> Batman from the 1960s. <laughs> um, but he realised it was just the plane. And then, oh. yeah, he just about survived. He managed to be evacuated on a medical plane. Pretty cool. I have a, a, a cool thing. So the first person to use an ejector seat, I think in the UK, yeah, right. was a guy, he was a, an Irish mechanic. He was called Bernard Lynch. And he tried. He did it in 1945, and later he did 32 more ejections from planes to test the stuff. Yeah, the, he was the, the guinea pig. He was the guinea pig. The ejection um, seat guinea pig. Yeah, for the firm Martin Baker, which is the British firm which makes thousands of ejection seats yeah. and just, just does all that. Anyway, um, I got to speak to Bernard Lynch's son, oh, Dermot. Yeah. Dermot. I Lynch. rang him up, and we had a cool really? chat. Yeah, and he uh, he had some crazy adventures. So once he landed in a field, right when he was testing an ejector seat. And then he just sort of left his parachute behind. I think he tied it to a tree or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he just went to the like pub. a dog poo. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> huge huge dog. Poo. I'm and coming like, back to pick it up. Okay, <laughs> don't get stressed out. He just went to the pub, and the, the team turn up obviously because they they track broadly where you're going and they're looking for it. And so the team from the company arrived at the field. Thought, oh no, Bernard's he's died he's somehow. Evaporated. The <laughs> tree ate him. <laughs> Um, they phoned his wife They told him he was dead And then they found him in, in the pub Straight away <laughs> That's premature Before they found the body Or anything They were just like Oh we're pretty sure He tied up his parachute And then he died yeah. <laughs> Actually I forgot to say When you were 10 minutes late today James I did call Polina oh, right. that. <laughs> So you'll, you'll want to reassure her Such a good point <laughs> Um, yeah, and then two hours later they found him in the park. <laughs> <Two hours. laughs> yeah. Wow, he was a legend, and he subjected his body to so much volunteering yeah. to do this because he used to before he mm. um, had himself fired out of actual planes. Um, they erected what sounds to me like one of those things at a fairground where you're sitting on a big long bench, and it lifts all the way up a pole, and then it drops you really hard. Mm. Do you know oh, what yeah, I mean? Those yeah, those fairgrounds. Yeah, yeah. I think he yeah. was like on a reverse version of that, so he what, would so sit. He was on the pole. <laughs> he, he was 
<laughs> he was reverse polling. <laughs> no, he was on something that would look the same, but it shoots you up incredibly fast. Right. Yeah. So it was like a bench attached to a pole. It was more like, um, if we were talking fairground things, it was more like uh, the the strong man kind of where you oh, yeah. you slam the hammer out and you send the oh, weight. He's, he's sitting on he's the sitting, tiny he's weight. He's sitting on the weight. <laughs> That's brilliant. And yeah, he's being he locked to the top. He was only six inches tall, wasn't yeah. he? Actually, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this worked. But he used to just do that until it got too painful. So they do it more and more with more and more force because you need maximum force for an ejection seat to get people out of harm's way yeah. and as soon as it got to such an agonizing level that he was like i don't think we can do this to pilots he'd say that's max force yeah. uh, next up he was very tough yeah he, he did one thing he refused to eject over water okay he just wouldn't do it he just wouldn't do it. in none of the experiments was he willing to oh do okay right, right. Over pubs. Water. And it was, yeah. <laughs> what? no pubs <laughs> it was because he'd fallen in sheep dip when he was eight and it was a really traumatizing experience. He might have nearly really? drowned or something. He'd fallen really? this pool sheep of dip. sheep dip. What's that? It's a chemical. It's a chemical solution that you make sheep walk through to, I think, um, clean, keep them clean or antiseptic. It's quite or... different than an ocean. Yeah, it is. So it it's quite like... strange that you would project one onto the other. Yeah, I guess, I guess it must just have been a drowning. Sounds more like yeah. that thing you go through when you're going to a swimming pool. Yeah, that it's little... like that. It is like that. Ah, yeah, yeah, that's right. it. Okay, but trauma. It was enough to traumatize Bernard. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably a fair enough request. I think so I think if you're so. constantly, yeah, being lobbed out of an ejector seat. Um, Martin Baker, did he work for this guy? Yeah, yeah. Um, so they uh, have a website, and on their website, it has a counter that tells you how many lives they've saved. Oh, really? Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah. Last time that I checked, which was when I did this research yesterday, it was 7,690 right. lives that they've saved. Decent. I wonder uh, how soon after the yeah. ejector seat saving the life they do the counter. It'd be cool if they did it in real time. In real time, yeah. 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 As in they have some kind of thing in the chairs that and whenever... It, it actually, when, when you pull the lever and you rock it out of the thing, it, the, the chair automatically spits out a little form. And you have to write, <laughs> I, have I, have, I have had my life saved by this. Yeah. Do you think it ever then goes down again? Because sometimes, you know, you'll think you've saved a life and then they'll crash into a thorn bush or something. Or we think it's, yeah. it's like when a goal's disallowed, you know, the yeah. goal score goes up. But then, yeah. actually, yeah, VAR yeah. says death. What if, what if that guy was run over by a car on the way to the pub? Would that, <laughs> would that discount it? I, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, but they were called James Martin and Valentine Baker, weren't they? Yeah. He was an amazing pilot, Valentine Baker. Um, he was Amy Johnson's flight instructor. Sorry, wait, is a Amy Johnson was an aviator from the yeah, 30s? Yeah, a sort of classic aviator from the, God, the Amelia Earhart sort of period. Yeah. Um, she I can't was, remember. Was she the first to fly across the Atlantic or something? God, I can't remember, I remember now. She was the first to do something. Fly to Australia? Fly to Australia. I think she crash landed on her way there. I've seen footage of that. So Amy Johnson, I think I've been to the town on the coast in Kent where she disappeared. Did she I think her plane well? Yeah, yeah. Right. I think she was flying. Uh, oh gosh, where is it? It's near. Um, there was a, there was a, a Turkish restaurant we went to, and I had. A, I had oh a yeah, okay, I, I know. There's the Turkish restaurant. I didn't remember it because I ordered the turnip juice as my drink for the meal. And, I've, I've heard this story. Before. And the waiter said, <laughs> oh, <God>. "The waiter <laughs> said, You're are you sure? Haul. Are you sure you want the turnip juice?'" And yeah, I said, right. I, "I'm here. I'm in, I'm on the North Kent coast. I want to experience." Turkish culture right. as it was intended to and uh, it was the absolutely toughest. he didn't like it guys spoiler yeah. he didn't like it <laughs> okay, okay guys so, so if you want to know where this happened either google where Amy Johnson crashed or just check out Andy's history on TripAdvisor yeah. reviews and you'll see it in there <laughs> oh, thank god you weren't asked to do the eulogy at a funeral <laughs> she was a wonderful person can I quickly just mention yesterday 
Hearn Bay. Hearn Bay. My wife once won a um, won a load of teddies on a shooting gallery in Hearn Bay. Really? Yeah. So many good personal anecdotes. <laughs> <in Hearn Bay. laughs> it's, it's, a rich, it's a rich place. I went there not long ago, but I, yeah, but I was only making a connecting train, so I just stayed ah, in the station. That's wow. a better story than both mine. <laughs> <I don't laughs> um, I read a, an article about the ejection club, yeah. Martin Baker Run, and it was they called it the only club where you have to be thrown out to get in. Brilliant. <laughs> that's, that's really good. Um, I got an alternative to an ejection seat here. Mm-hmm. This is great. This is a plane. It's an American plane called uh-huh. the, the Douglas F3D Sky Knight. All right. Do you Pretty have to say cool. it like that? Yes, you do. Right. Uh, it was this US plane. And if you had to bail out, it was, it was a really small cruise. That's two two seater plane. Yeah. You're sitting next to each other. Okay. Um, one is the pilot and one is. Uh, Co pilot? No, doing <laughs> genuinely doing something else like um, radar or, or, yeah. or getting some, some drinks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got yeah. a tiny trolley, uh, <laughs> and he offers the pilot chicken or fish uh, about halfway through the flight. Yeah. Um, Do you want to buy any lottery cards? We're selling lottery cards. It's for charity. Um, if you've got any spare change in the country you've come from, you can buy these lottery cards. We're both flying over Cambodia now. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, but it's exactly that, you know. So anyway. There's this plate, the Sky Knight. And um, if they had to bail out, the crew didn't have an injector seat in the plane. What they had effectively was a slide. Oh, really? Okay. Going down and back. Yeah, yeah. So you would just have to sense. pop out between the engines of the plane. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, this sounds incredibly risky. You did, obviously, you'd have a parachute on when you did that, um, ideally. Yeah, otherwise, <laughs> what's, yeah. what's the next moment? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sounds risky. <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure you want to do this? This looks pretty risky. <laughs> no, you're right. Let's die instead. <laughs> Let's just crash. I'll have the chicken. <laughs> <laughs> um, but sometimes they use this plane to deploy commandos into the jungle. So you'd have one pilot and one commando in the plane. And at a certain point, the commando just pops down the slide. It's, I mean, just That's sounds, so cool. It sounds amazing. Yeah. I think it did was, it work? I, I think it was, yeah. it was incredibly dangerous. It, it wasn't dangerous. used for long. And yeah. I think because it was first used in the A3D, which came to stand for all three dead. Because uh, that, that was three God. people um, who would be in the plane, and I think it took a long time because it was sort of behind the seat, so you realised you were going to crash, and then you had to sort of clamber over. You're wearing yeah, quite a lot of really gear, cramped. squeeze yeah. it one after the other. Yeah, yeah. They, right. Even now, they say if you lose your phone behind the seats, you're not allowed to get it yourself. You have to get the attendant to come and get your phone. And that's for in you. case you fall down the chute when yeah, you're trying. I think so. <laughs> It's just the last thing. If you love ejector seats and they look so cool, yeah. and I spent a lot of hours last night trying to find the most affordable one, but on eBay, <laughs> they go. What are you trying to eject out of? They look home? so cool. They sell them to Not just. Don't run yours for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you an anecdote about a Turkish Rose. Go on! Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that there is a school in Massachusetts that has had all of its 7,000 light bulbs permanently on for over a year and a half now because no one knows how to turn them off. <laughs> so, so this is a lighting system that was installed in Minichaug Regional High School, which is in Massachusetts. And the idea was they were thinking, how can we have a lighting system that's going to save us a lot of money? And they came up with this. They thought this is going to save us hundreds of thousands of dollars over the years um unfortunately it was just it happened to be very efficiently built yeah there was was, there were led light bulbs there was it had dimming qualities on it it was a real it was a great system that was energy efficient in a way that usual light bulbs wouldn't be and so they decided to go for the system and then during the pandemic something in the system went faulty and Mm. failed 
which meant that the lights weren't dimming. It meant they weren't going off altogether. It meant, basically, that close to 7,000 of these light bulbs were just <laughs> remaining on. Then it was discovered that actually the hardware that was needed to fix it wasn't available and they needed to order it from China, which had a backlog of orders, so they couldn't get it over. So uh, as we speak, it still hasn't been fixed. They know the problem. They've ordered the parts. They're arriving. I think they have them now, but they're not putting them in till March. And so... Because they need like experts to come and put yeah. them in and they can't get them. It is so <laughs> mad. And because it's like taxpayer-funded school, obviously. So every day you have a reminder of what your taxes are going towards as you walk past this brightly illuminated school. And it's costing thousands a month. Could they, they turn mm. the electricity off? Like, yeah. as in every night, when everyone, all the kids go away, you mm. just... Yeah, you'd think like, so, right? But... Maybe, maybe there's health and safety reasons why you can't do that. It feels like there must be something they can use that light for. Do you know what oh, I mean? I mean, yeah. there must be a use at night. Put solar panels in that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's how I actually, um, all my electricity in my house is I put solar panels underneath all my lights <laughs> and then keep my lights on all the time. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's a big problem. It's costing them possibly tens of thousands of dollars at this point. I mean, it certainly has. And um, some of the teachers try to fix it by just taking the light bulbs out themselves. Um, yeah. yeah, just <laughs> does that going work? around. Uh, it does, but, you know, they only take out three or four as opposed you, to the 7,000. You can't 7, do that 000. every night, can you? 7,000 bulbs? <laughs> You've got to charge those ceiling lights, you know, the recessed uh, yeah. ceiling lights, they're a complete pain in the they ass are. to, to they get are. screw. Mm. Yeah, exactly. It's my, it's my two pennyworth. Um, <laughs> I've, speaking of bad lighting systems, yeah. Um, actually, I had a little look uh, in the in the fish inbox podcast mm-hmm. at qi dot com just about you know see if anyone had written in about about light bulbs. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Paddy McRae, who wrote in quite a while ago now. Uh, I hope you're still listening, Paddy. Um, this is an incredible fact. It's about the Terminal Five at Heathrow, right? Oh yeah. Uh, which has this beautiful high ceiling. Yeah. You know, like the bulbs are all about 120 feet in the air. And between 2008 and 2013, no bulbs were changed in the ceiling because they didn't have a good way of doing it. Uh-huh. And at that point, about 60% of the bulbs had gone. Oh, wow. And so the reports so say that they hired a team of tightrope walkers because that was the only <laughs> way. <laughs> no. That's so funny. That can't be true. That's untrue. I'm pretty... Look, look take it up with the Daily Telegraph who reported that a Cirque du Soleil style high-level rope work firm had been engaged to change so the bulbs. Funny. But then they would do some of them and then some of them would be changed by someone in a human cannonball and they would be fired up and then other ones it would be trapeze guys. Um, pyramid of clowns. Yeah. Just all doing one. Very, very risky there. Yeah. That's so um, funny. I, wow. I'm sure no one was in a costume uh, I was in um, Dubai recently and there's lots of glass skyscrapers there mm. and they're all the window cleaners are all done by hand right. so they have people who are literally like on ropes going down all of the highest buildings in the world yeah, um, just cleaning them that's a fun but, job I've always thought that would be a fun job, actually. Oh, it's it's like one of those harnesses. They call them rats because they're rope access technicians. Ah. That's the ah. the um, co- main company that does Burj Khalifa, which is the highest building, um, if you want to get a job there, they show you like a video nasty before you <laughs> are allowed to apply. <laughs> and they show you like really awful like examples of people who almost fell and oh, stuff. No. And they're like, if you're okay with the video, then you can have an interview. Right. Do they show you Mission Impossible 4? <laughs> In which Tom Cruise... Oh, climbs right. up the Burj Khalifa. Whoa, and he's a yeah. sandstorm, is there? Uh, yeah, he's got some special sticky gloves and they stop working and then he looks behind them and there's a sandstorm approaching and then, oh, better climb a bit faster. Yeah. Well, isn't he responsible for making one of these guys have to do extra work because while he was up there, he graffitied Katie Holmes' name. Like, I love Katie Holmes. No. Yeah, yeah, Did and they really? had to go and clean that off. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. 
Um, when they first had electric lights, um, Edison's ones, um, you would have them in a building. Obviously, no one had seen them before. And so there would be a sign often next to them warning people not to try and light the light bulb with a match. Wow. <laughs> I've, wow. That's I've seen one of these signs. It says, this room is equipped with Edison electric light. Do not attempt to light with match. Simply turn key on wall by door. The use of electricity for lighting is in no way harmful to health, nor does it affect the soundness of sleep. It does affect If you leave the lights on all night, you're going to have your sleep affected. I That's know. just a lie. Mm. It was a design. lie. They didn't know at the time. They didn't know any better. They didn't. Lights on all night. Insomnia. I didn't know why, um, why you had to have a light bulb. Like why you couldn't just... Why you needed the glass, basically. Yeah. Go on. Well, it's, it's because um, it'll react with the oxygen, the filament. To make mm-hmm. a vacuum. Right. Yeah. So if you have an incandescent bulb, this is the old, the, the, the good old fashioned, you know, pre EU. Oh, not, good. Okay. No, oh, no, no, good. No. You're one it's of those. That, <laughs> it's the one where you've got the bulb, the tiny bit of wire, and then and you run a current through the wire, and that glows. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's because the filament would react with oxygen immediately and then burn out really fast. And if you, as James says, create a vacuum or fill it with an inert gas, mm-hmm. then it lasts longer. But I just, I didn't know actually why. I had this moment yesterday where it's kind of an anti light bulb moment where I was thinking. Wait, hang on. Why don't we just not have the bulb? Right. Um, <laughs> Save on glass. <laughs> Save so much glass. Uh, and um, yeah. What and would I, the safety be outside of that in terms of I'd, if you went and touched it rather than really burning it? Well, well, but you badly, wouldn't yeah. electrocute yourself, or um, yeah, and it would, and there's an electric current throwing, flowing through it. But mm. it's a small the, current, I think. But mm-hmm. you would you would burn yourself. It's so hot. The heat is so cool. The level of heat that you have in your own room. Again, if you're using an incandescent bulb, which you shouldn't be. Because um, obviously they're not as efficient, but um, it get that filament gets to two thousand two hundred degrees centigrade. It's Isn't hot. it so weird to think you're sitting in your sitting room, just biding your time, <laughs> and there's something over there which is that hot? And also the filament is so long when you look inside an old bulb; it's two meters long. Really? It's just really, really thin, zero oh, point two millimeters oh, thick. Cool. This is an old tungsten filament. In Babylon, ancient Babylon. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to buy enough oil to light your front room um, with a, with a, an oil lamp you would have to work for 41 hours right for, to get it to burn for an hour oh i see okay what? so 41 hours work you'd be able to buy enough oil to make your light bulb for 1 hour okay that is rubbish okay. in 1992 in america you could get the same amount of light uh, by working for less than one second. Wow. Imagine being um, a dad in ancient Babylon, you know, <laughs> getting your family to go around turning off the lights. That has taken 40 <laughs> hours of work. I've worked all week, <laughs> one hour. Uh, I come back into the room. No one's in the room. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So we've never mentioned actually the longest burning light bulb in the world. Which is kind of incredible. The Livermore Centennial light bulb. It's been burning non-stop brackets with a couple of caveats, close brackets, since 1901. Mm. And um, I think one of the keys to its success is that it's four watts. But it, is, it has to be on 24 hours a day because it's in a fire station. So it's to provide a bit of illumination for fire engines. Oh. And Guinness says there's been one break in its operation when it was taken from one station to another in the 70s. Yeah. And on that occasion, it had, apparently, it says on its own website, a full police and fire truck escort to take it to its well, site. It's, it's just the fire truck taking it to another place. <laughs> I don't, you can't call that an escort if you bring in your own thing. Yeah. Escort implied to me there was like another fire truck 
like running alongside it, right, kind okay. of stopping anyone else yeah, from getting near, yeah, like yeah. a bodyguard. I'm more, for the longest light bulb in the world, I'm more interested in the fourth longest lasting light oh, bulb yeah, in yeah. the world. Um, because <laughs> it was, so this is a light bulb that is in New York City. Uh, it's not there anymore. Um, but at the time, it was outside a place called the Gasnick Supply, which was a hardware store. And the owner, Jack Gasnick, he was the guy who was trying to get it acknowledged to be older than all of the other light bulbs. Right. Mm-hmm. But to the point of like, he was furious. He was like, there's no way that the Livermore light bulb is an actual genuine <laughs> light bulb. He wrote to Dear Abby, which was like one of those agony aunt yeah. things saying, what do I do? I've got a light bulb that's lasted longer. So That must have been a nice day for Abby. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Normally writing about people having affairs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, She's yeah. like, oh, finally, a light bulb. Yeah. And he wrote to Guinness saying, this is insane that you've given this record. It's clearly a fake light bulb. My a light bulb. fake light bulb? He's like, so a, like a cardboard cutout. He thinks something was going on. So he said um, that the bulb is not dark enough to have burnt consistently so he said right away i saw it was so clear it does not show any sign of carbonization a bulb that has burned 20 30 40 years would be extremely dark from the carbon two the bulb is a brass turn knob socket you can't have a bulb burn continuously in a brass turn knob socket i strongly disagree it it would get so (laughs) hot it would burn the wires um yeah, yeah so uh there was a big challenge and um no one accepted it you <laughs> when know, you said so. this one isn't there anymore in new york has yeah. it gone off or is it do we know what's happened to it the or? whole of that block that the the half block was sort of taken down to the oh, ground no. so as far as we know it by this guy worked. in a rage <laughs> yeah. no by it. livermore and really? its mafia to... really? there was a huge fire yeah. <laughs> you know when you like try and build a new house and they say oh sorry there's some really um like there's some lizards here that yes. are going extinct or something. It does feel like you shouldn't be able to knock down a house that has the four-fold display bulb in it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, it absolutely. Does. Conservation. Yeah. There is an older one in the UK, an older light bulb. Then the Livermore. Then the Livermore one, yeah. Is there? Uh, yeah, but it just hasn't been on all the time. Oh, right. <laughs> this tragic person's just kept to use light bulbs. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It's called the Ediswan light bulb. Uh, it was first turned on in 1883 in Haitian. Uh, in England, and it's owned by someone called Beth Crook, or at least it was when I read this article. Um, but yeah, they they don't really turn it on very often. <laughs> I think that's sensible. I think yeah, have a makes nice, sense. You know, special occasions. Well, some yeah. people think that the Livermore one has lasted so long because it's never turned off. Yeah. Um, because when you turn something off, sometimes there's like a surge of electricity and stuff that can damage the filament. Whereas this has always had four watts. Just I do that with my computer. Yeah. If I turn it off, I think horrible things will happen. So I just, just keep flogging it on. Just, well, a few more I, years. Do, I do the same with my car engine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Anna. My fact is that in 1955, one person secretly bought almost all the onions in America. <laughs> uh, this is a guy called Vince Kosuga. And he was an onion farmer in the 1930s. And he thought, um, I want to take this bigger. And so he decided to corner the entire onion market (laughs) of America by buying all of the onions. Um, And so then, you know, you've cornered the market, you've got all the onions, so you can absolutely control the price of onions. But the, the thing I find so incredible about this is that in order to stop word spreading... Because as soon as word spreads that he's doing this, then people selling him onions are going to go, sort of, I'm going to charge way more for these onions then. Mm. Yeah. It's not worth spending. He would have Makes had sense. to do it completely in secret. 
and make sure none of the onion sellers are talking to each other going did yeah. that guy Vince come so to last he would like, just go in with a different moustache and a hat and I stuff, think so and, like, yeah. 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 so what he, what he especially bought he bought onions yes but he also bought onions before they existed he potential bought, onions yeah potential onions yes. he bought onion futures conceptual yeah. onions conceptual onions it's, but the basic idea is you buy the right to buy the future onions for an agreed price you say I'll buy 10 tonnes of onions from you next year for uh, a pound a kilo or whatever and then you have to do that. Yeah. yeah, you're betting that the price will go up in that time, and you've already made the agreement, so you'll make yeah. the difference. Yeah. And you could also be screwed, though. You'd have to still yeah. stick to that price, yeah. even if they were worth worth less at the time. But if you bought all the onions, you can charge whatever you price good. you want. Yeah. Well, but then the the weird trick he did was, as well as cornering the onion market, he didn't stop there. So he bought all the onions. And then he said to people who wanted to distribute onions, you're going to have to buy them off me for a huge price because mm. I'm the only one with them. So they did that. He made shed loads of money there. And then he thought, sort of, I'm going to screw these guys over and flood the market anyway. Yeah. So then stage two, he went to Chicago with all the onions left over <laughs> in his warehouse, just lorry load after lorry load, dumped them. It sounds like just on the streets in giant sacks. So flooding the market with onions, plummeting the onion price must down. Have been like onion Christmas. <laughs> Everyone just yeah. walks outside and there's just onions everywhere. It's quite a shit Christmas actually, I think, isn't it? <laughs> Stocking yeah. filled with onions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the reason he did that is because he was betting on onion futures. So he knew he was going to do this. So he bet that the price would go down. Mm. So he made eight and a half million at mm. the time, money at the time, mm. for the first initial selling back to the farmer. So he was kind of quids in anyway, right? Yeah. yeah. So if you think about it, you've done this brilliant scheme of buying all the onions. Yeah. You've made a ton of money. But then you're left with all these onions, right? What are you you need do? to get rid of the onions somehow, yeah. but also yeah. make money out of them. You could sell them at the normal price, or you could do this betting against the price going down thing. The betting thing was very clever, yeah. How amazing that he pulled it off, just by the way. That I know. This guy went around America and managed to successfully collect every single virtually every single onion i mean he was he was brought into congress because the farmers once this scheme was discovered and particularly this second bit that you were mentioning anna about how he screwed them over they said to their congressman you can't have someone doing this this is we've always said this is going to be the problem with future trading and so on he's monopolized the market this can't happen so it wasn't illegal though but he was brought into congress and his lawyer said make sure you just don't lie about anything and they said we understand you own 97 percent of the onions in the united states and he said that's incorrect 98 percent like he had he was missing two percent of onions yeah. in the yeah. states uh, so onions are really good they, they keep for a really long time if you keep mm. them dark and dry they keep for months mm. and months and months on oh, end okay. without going off but they some of them did start to go off because he had lots and lots and lots of onions in Nildi's warehouses and then supposedly uh kasuga he had the onions reconditioned to clean them up a bit yeah repackage them take the few layers off and it yeah, yeah, yeah. peel off the whole <laughs> exactly. outside. Yeah, yeah. and then they were sent back into all the warehouses in Chicago where they'd been stored in the first place. But that was assumed to be even more onions coming into the city. People didn't realise those were the same onions as before. Oh. People thought, oh my God, there are even more onions. <laughs> and, it just, and, that, and the prices really collapsed then. And this yeah. onion-mess that happened in Chicago, it sounds absolutely bananas. Orphans were receiving free onions in the streets. <laughs> um, the Chicago River was just taking load after load of onions that were being chucked into it. Really? Yeah. The fish like... breath <laughs> just years after. They were like, Vince, why are you crying? You've just made millions of dollars. <laughs> I'm a bit confused about why they were starting to be handed out to everyone. The price was nothing. But who's handing it out at this point? Is well, it let's Vince? say you run an orphanage yeah. and you want to feed your orphans. Yeah. You're going to feed them with the thing that costs 
10p for a million got it you know okay I mean? all that is free in a sack yeah. that's yeah, been yeah. dumped on your not great fun for the orphans actually because once you've had 17 meals of just onion then it gets old it's very versatile yeah. yeah, I think onion is onion. one of those. Yeah. Oh, onion's one Absolutely. of those base foods. That's it's who was vital. it who said this about British cuisine? I think it was Athena, actually Athena Kavlenu, our mm. friend, and she said that basically every English dish begins with an English person cutting up an onion, putting it in a pan with some <laughs> yeah. oil, yeah. and then we just decide what to do after that. Yeah, yeah. that's very true. Yeah, you can't yeah. leave it on its own, though, can you? It is very much a base. You know, you gotta yeah. you gotta toss veggies. something else in. Yeah, onion Bargy, soup. That's yeah, yeah. They're the closest. Onion soup is probably the closest to a natural onion. Yeah, and really, that's ninety percent cheese. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. in 1958, President Eisenhower signed the Onion Futures Act, mm. that meant that this could never happen again, <laughs> uh, and it bans anyone from trading in onion futures, basically, in the United States. But the Onion Futures Act also bans people from betting on the receipts of motion picture box office. Oh, why? What? <laughs> so, according to the Onion Futures Act, you're not allowed to trade in onion futures or motion picture box office receipt futures. What the wow. hell? So, and onions was... and minions. They're the <laughs> two areas. Brilliant. Uh, and that was because in 2010, the Motion Picture Association of America lobbied to stop people from being able to do these futures in motion pictures. And rather than doing a new act, they just sort of lobbed it on the so end funny. of this onion Tang act. On. Oh. I always get confused. I'm slightly confused about the the aspect of motion picture box office receipts because is the is the idea that I'll make is James Cameron doing this by basically saying like I'm gonna I'm gonna buy the rights to all future Avatar movies and then he makes five Avatar movies flooding the market. That's pretty much what's happened. But he controls all the Avatar movies, so... And then there are so many that they're being given away for free to orphans in the streets. <laughs> I'm slightly confused about the. Yeah, yeah that's why. I, I thought it might be like a producer's thing where you make you buy them up and then you make a deliberately shit film and then it doesn't get any box office receipts and you bet against them. But there were some mm. tax schemes that did that in the UK. There were tax schemes investing money in. Is why there was a rash of particularly bad British comedy. Well, films it was made. actually the way that that worked is that you got tax relief if yeah. you invested in a British movie in the same way that if you gave money to charity you would. Yeah, and that's the Avatar mm. thing that we talked about with Wayne Rooney. Um, oh yes, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and uh, someone that James and I know uh, from back in the day, Gareth Edwards, who made oh, yeah. um, Rogue One, the Monster. Star Wars movie. Really? But his first movie that he made was called Monster. Yeah, it's a great film. It's a great yeah, film, and that was a tax scheme. That Monsters. was the company yeah. that needed to offset some money, and that's how he was funded to make that movie. God, well, that's the most entertaining tax scheme I've ever seen. Yeah, it was it's a really brilliant good film. movie. Yeah, 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 absolutely brilliant. Oh. Um, um, <laughs> Nutmeg. What? Huh? The nutmeg monopoly? Oh, Can yeah. we talk about that? <laughs> oh, <laughs> right, sorry. Um, I was looking up other historical monopolies. Yeah. And the spiced nutmeg was controlled by the Dutch for uh, decades. Oh, a long time. I think they even, that's the thing they traded Manhattan for, the island of Manhattan. They said, no, the British had it. And then they said, no, we'll have that. Um, sorry, they had it. And then the British said, we quite like that island. They said, well, we want this random spice island in the yeah, pacific from you yeah. banda and island was that something exactly exactly the banda islands in indonesia and um the dutch secured them not actually a bad deal trading manhattan for the spice island because the sheer amount of value they extracted by controlling you know really fiercely the nutmeg trade as in you know as with all colonial things they treated the local people appallingly killing people importing their own farmers all of this like clearing the islands planting their own trees and then they got the monopoly in nutmeg and for about 150 years, they controlled nutmeg and cloves 
pretty much worldwide. They had almost all the nutmeg and cloves on the planet. Right. It's kind of 98% of it. And if you stole a nutmeg, they'd, they'd come after you. They'd kill you. <laughs> they ritually burned all their excess nutmeg every year. In what oh. must have been a lovely smelling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so nice. At Christmas time? Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the markup was about 60,000% between <laughs> source and street value. Wow. Nice. Of nutmeg. That's yeah. a good markup. A good amount. And if you, if you had a small sackful, you were made for life. Right. Basically. And this was just a, the bunch of Dutch people who got this island, basically. Yeah, exactly. This yeah, company. Yeah, yeah. Great. And, and this is before everyone knew it was bloody poisonous. So you shouldn't OD on it. <laughs> Isn't it? I, I see. I have a distant memory of them also as a result having a monopoly over a certain type of drug as a result of nutmeg being used. I want to say MDMA. Um, they were know. basically the providers of MDMA as a result of this. I think, it, I think well, the monopoly was broken in a, the late 18th century. So I don't okay, know. Yeah, no, that's a, okay, yeah, that's no, no. If you read Jane Austen a certain way, you can tell they are. That was what caused the French Revolution, actually. <laughs> They're all off their tits. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, and the man who broke the monopoly, or one of the men who broke the monopoly, is a Frenchman who called Pierre Poivre, whose name, uh, pleasingly, is Peter Pepper. Peter Pepper, mm, yeah. yeah. Very nice. Good on him. And he, he um, supposedly, he nicked one of the trees out of the way that the Dutch hadn't spotted and made, made off with it. Yeah. And then seven years later, monopoly's broken, got nutmeg everywhere. What a shame his name wasn't Pierre Nutmeg. But <laughs> there is a theory yeah. that the Peter Piper picked a pack of pickled peppers is based on him. Mm. Right? I like that. Uh, I'm not sure it's true, but. but you can see where the theory came from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just this fact is about um, sort of someone controlling market. There not being any competition. Yeah, and it just reminded me of one of my favourite things. And I think I learned this listening to a Wondrium course ages ago actually but in medieval times the guilds were really really strong yeah so if you're um trading produce in a town you have to be part of a guild this mm -hmm. is in medieval England and France and lots of other European countries and if you weren't a member of the guild you would not be allowed to sell your carrot or your um bracelets or whatever and <laughs> only, only two things i can think of um but yeah the guilds were so strict so they didn't want any competition between any of their members you forget that like capitalism today everyone's in competition all the time that was just anathema to them so they dictated everything you use to make your produce so if you're making your carrots you have to make them with the tool that the guild says you have to make it with uh, using the exact techniques you're not allowed to work more than a certain number of working hours they'll monitor you um you yeah everything machinery everything and then you get to market and you've done it exactly the same as everyone else and you absolutely can't advertise which means you literally can't draw attention to yourself at all no and there were gu guilds would forbid things like sneezing or no, or nodding at passers-by because this was thought to that be... That must have been tough for the pepper guilds. <laughs> <laughs> the, the poor man from the itching powder guild has to stand ramrod still. That's amazing. Wow. I don't know how anyone saw anything, really. <laughs> Okay, it's time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that in 1983, an autograph hunter wrote to Steve Jobs. Jobs replied saying that he didn't sign autographs, but he signed that letter and it sold last year for half a million dollars. <laughs> That's incredible. 
Do you think, what? did he put put the stamp on, put it through the post box and then go, oh, oh, oh damn it. <laughs> I think he was knowingly, it's, 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 written, it's written very much as if a gag, I would say. Maybe. Um, you never know though. You never he know. said, it, it's written, he says, I'm honoured you would write, but I'm afraid I don't sign autographs. And it was sold at RR Auctions. Um, that's the letter R. I know my accent is a bit weird, but RR Auctions. That's a pirate auction sign. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and they suggested that perhaps there was a photograph or magazine enclosed in the original letter and that he didn't sign that yes. as opposed to it being a joke. But I agree, it does sound kind of like a joke, doesn't yeah, it? It does. There is. I have an alternate theory about well, jobs. So I uh, I was reading a book from 1910 called Chats on Autographs oh, by A.M. Yeah. Broadley. Just a little shout out to him. He'll be uh, really great yeah, for yeah. that. <laughs> and um, he relates in this book the story of the Archbishop of York who wrote back to an autograph hunter saying, Sir, I never give my autograph and never will, and then signed it. And um, maybe it was Steve Jobs doing a little little tribute to that. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Dude, the Archbishop of York. One of them, yeah. I don't know which one. Wow. Yeah. wow. Oh, my God. You're the, and you're the first person ever to get that. <laughs> and he's finally can rest in peace. Wow. <laughs> he was a huge fan of the Archbishops of Northern England, oh, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I've read a few times where people have tricked others into giving a signature in almost this Steve Jobs-esque oh, yeah. kind of thing. So, for example, um, Lee Harvey Oswald's mother, uh, one of the ways that she used to make money after the assassination was that she used to sell her signature to people and oh, really? got to a point where selling her signature got her quite a good living if she could do it. Mm. But what people who would interview her would always trick her would be to get her to sign a release form mm. to the interview that they'd filmed or whatever. And then that's how they would get their signature. Right. Um, so, clever. yeah, there's all these tricky ways, isn't there, of, of getting a celebrity signature mm. if they don't give it. Because a few don't. We've mentioned Steve Martin. He has a card that he hands. Jonah Hill does the same thing. Instead yeah. of signing, if you approach Jonah Hill, he just hands a card saying, I just met Jonah Hill. It was a total letdown. And that's just that's on his little business card. There's um, a famous story of um, Dennis Lilly, the Australian fast bowler cricketer, okay. who met the Queen and asked for her autograph. <laughs> So she was in Melbourne watching some test cricket and then he sort of queued up and met her and ah. said, can I get your autograph, mate? And there's actually a photo mate. of him. It's <laughs> <laughs> pronounced ma'am. <laughs> well, in fact, that the first time he met her was earlier and I think he said, g'day, how are you going? And then chucked out his hand for a handshake. So they, he had form with the Queen. You know, um, what's Prince Harry's child called? Uh, Archie. Or Lilibet. Lilibet. It's actually named after Dennis Lilly. (laughs) (laughs) Made such an impression. Well, he obviously did because he um, said, can I have your autograph? Someone took a photo actually of him holding out a notebook and pen and her looking a bit like, probably not going to do that. And she said, no, I'm sorry, it's against protocol. But then a few weeks later, he received in the post a photograph of that moment when he asked for her autograph signed by the Queen. No way. Yeah. Um, on people who refuse autographs, yeah, yeah. friend of the podcast, George Elliott, she instructed oh, yeah. her boyfriend, Henry Lewis, to write point blank refusals to anyone well, who... Well, she would have to get a massive crayon <laughs> <wouldn't she? laughs> with her huge hands <laughs> <in> the room. <laughs> novelty pencils, yeah. <laughs> Why? Why did she refuse? She's busy. Middle of okay, a huge sorry, book. Sorry. Also, she was very confused about what her name was, wasn't she? I'm a George, yeah. my Marianne Evans. Have I got a, in another pseudonym now? Yeah. Um, uh, can I tell you someone who collected autographs? Sure. Yeah. Queen Victoria. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. She had this cool thing. I'd never heard of it before. It was called an autograph fan. And it's literally a fan 
and every separate blade of the fan, yeah. you write a different person's signature on. Or oh, they oh. write it. You yeah. <laughs> Even better. They she write was, it on. She was a great forger. forger. But um, I just love the idea of Queen yeah. Victoria saying, can I have your autograph to someone? Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was mostly um, her children and prime ministers and things like that. Okay. So it was, uh, okay. yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. Do we yeah. have the fans? Are they, yeah, are they in? Just, wow. Yeah. I'd love to see those. Is that why they're called fans? People who ask for autographs? Um, yeah. It's, it's, a good, it's a good legit question, <laughs> I think. No, I knew it was not. I know, but what, where, where, where were they called fans? Fanatical. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or. <laughs> um, one of the most expensive autographs you can get is of Button Gwinnett. Button Gwinnett. Uh, if you ever have an autograph of Button Gwinnett, it will cost at least $1 million. Okay. At least. Button Gwinnett. Button Gwinnett. Button as in the things that you fasten your... Yeah. <laughs> You're close Doesn't, with and yeah, win yeah. it exactly how you would expect to spell it. Can we guess? You're leaving us hanging as if maybe we could guess who this <gasps> so person is. So it's obviously it guessable. To. I reckon yeah, it's yeah. a. Oh no, it Famous won't be signatures. a forger, would it? This is the most expensive signature. It's not the most expensive, but it will cost you at least a million dollars okay. to get it. I think I know it. Ooh. Go on. Is it Declaration of Independence? It's Declaration of Independence. And most people have, or a lot of people who collect autographs of people who signed the Declaration of Independence will have 55 of the 56. But Button Gwinnett is extremely rare. Uh, he died quite soon afterwards in a duel. Um, someone called him a scoundrel and a lying rascal. Uh, and he got in a duel and died. And so didn't, there's like maybe a dozen or half a dozen of his signatures out there. And if you want the full set, you're going to have to cough up at least a million dollars for it. It's like the rarest football sticker. Yeah. yeah. Put it in six packs of But it's, it's amazing because he's like the least famous, well, or one of the least famous ones, right? Yeah. But he's still... By a long way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Although I was, well, I was skimming the Declaration of Independence and you haven't heard of most of them. No. Trust me. Skimming. <laughs> but, uh, why I happen to be skimming because I was actually... <laughs> <laughs> I just like to remind myself of the principles on which the country is based. Everyone else on the bus is on their phone. Anna's on her scroll. <laughs> I think if you're ever on Pointless, listener, and it comes up, name someone from the Declaration of Independence, yeah. Button Gwinnett has got to be. Oh, yes. This is a good one. I Gwinnett reckon most people, most people couldn't get beyond the first six or seven. No. But anyway, the reason I was skimming it was because I was wondering about... Um... <laughs> I'm not sure I could get beyond George Washington. Yeah. John Hancock. Yeah, just name the first few presidents. Ben, yeah. ben Franklin, though, was yeah. he one as well? Was, was Gouverneur Morris, who died with a whalebone off his penis? I yeah, think he was. He was, yeah, yeah, he yeah. was on there. Um, Poor guy. John Adams. Just, we've got that extra <laughs> sentence to his name. We've him. We just said Ben Franklin, John Adams. <laughs> Governor Morris, the guy who had the whalebone off his penis and died. <laughs> Oh God. The English getting this Declaration of Independence and reading it going, it's the guy. Is it wealthy, it's actually guy? part of his signature. Really. They've just added it on afterwards. For anyone doubting who this is. Um, um, John Hancock. This is why I was browsing it for yeah. this, because I was thinking about Hancock. I wonder what interesting stuff there is about the John Hancock. Oh, yeah. The signature, you know, byword for a signature, because he was the first person to sign it. Yeah. Um, and there's not much, but I hadn't really looked at the signatures there before. And it's really like, you know, if you sign someone's birthday card at work and someone writes their own name yeah. incredibly big. It's and amazing. it's like, did you not know the rest of us were going to have to sign this? <laughs> it's way more than twice the size of the second biggest. John Adams has just written, get well soon. Yeah. <laughs> See you later. Well, it's lovely working with you. <laughs> Um, there's on just sports signatures. Yeah. There's Luka Doncic, oh. who's a basketball player. Genius. He's, he's a big deal. Yeah. He's a genius. Mavericks. 
And his signature has been making the news lately because it broke a record for the most ever paid for a basketball card at public auction. So okay, wow. Get these specific cards called Logoman cards or Logoman cards. It's a thing in the basketball world where you have your NBA logo on this card from your jersey. Feels like it'll be Logoman then. It does. And yeah, some people say logo. So okay. you got your NBA <laughs> logo. <laughs> Or your NBA logo. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It just depends where you come from, doesn't it? It does, um, doesn't it? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Are you going to ask us to guess? Uh, yes. Okay, fine. Well, that wasn't going to be part of it, but sure. So that sold at most ever paid uh, public auction for a basketball card. How much do you think for okay. November 22? $75. Seven- <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Steve Jobs, half a mil. Uh, Button Gwinnett, over one million. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it would be somewhere in between the two. I'll go for $700,000. Oh, I like that you've done that. You've un- you've undershot it, and it's very generous of you. So wow. it went for 3.12 million and actually <sighs> sold in private the year before what? for 4.6 million, which does imply so the person who bought it. In a year yeah. as well. <laughs> That's um... What makes you think you've got this card that you paid $4 million for and a year later you're like, you know what, I'm going to sell it for $3 million. What goes through your head? They must have come upon really hard times. Oh, I think what yeah. it was is it was initially bought by Vince Kasuga and then he sold it, <laughs> but then flooded the market with all his other right. Luca signatures. Chicago, the orphans of Chicago were receiving so many of these bloody basketball cards. Anyway, wow. that's the thing I really like about this, um, which makes me want to laugh in the face of whoever bought it, is that um, his signature keeps changing. And it's changed oh. a lot since his teens. And there's a lot of chat that actually it's not his signature. Oh. He's got his hands replaced. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that it? You're so close. Oh, um, the basketball has crippled his fingers over the years and it's changed the way he writes his name. Someone's just forged it. He's, That's he, the claim. He's died and been replaced by another. Someone's just forged it. Right? Okay, <laughs> I think James, James has just said the... Wait, no, no, yeah. keep going, Andy, keep going. <laughs> People think he's got the Luca signature, which is his old one, and the Lula one, which is his new one because it's more feminine. Since he became president <laughs> of Brazil. <laughs> It's like he's been replaced by the president. <laughs> That's the conspiracy theory. Wow. I love it. And yeah. as Dan says, he's a genius, so I think he's he going to do a pretty good job. Um, sorry, it's actually called the Lulu one. Since um, he was replaced by the 80s singer. <laughs> There's been a body swap comedy somewhere. And anyway, it's thought that it's his mother's signature. Oh, oh interesting. Really? Someone else did that. And in fact, we were talking about presidential signatures. Ronald Reagan. Oh, yeah. But when he was an actor, not when he was president, he got his mum. I think he he, he paid his mum or he asked the studio to pay for his mum to sign all of his fan mail. Uh, and it's now believed that pretty much everything he wrote from the late 1930s to the late 1950s is suspect. You can't trust any signature from that time. <laughs> it's not authentic. Even his Christmas card was probably right. him getting his mum to do it all. Uh, you know, the whole Berlin Wall thing and everything. Was that was mum, actually his mum. all his mum all now. Along. Yeah, I'm yeah, so yeah. glad you clarified it. I thought what you meant, Anna, was not that his mum had written the fake signature, but that he'd changed his signature to his mum's signature <laughs> well that's because when he was at school they sent a letter back saying that he couldn't do his homework he used to practice his yeah. mum's signature he knew it inside out yeah. yeah I'm I'm in the category of autograph collector yeah. to a certain degree no. yeah I like, I'd like the occasional yeah if I if I could find one and um, I brought in a few of my oh, favourite from my collection just to show you so first off oh, wow. oh, dear. I've just I've just you guys can't see what I, I can see the dance bag from where I'm sitting and I know the story behind this so one. the first thing I have oh, is a signed Beatles drumstick from the drummer of the Beatles okay yeah Pete Best who was the original Oh, yeah. you've got yeah. the Pete Best. That's so cool. Yeah, so I don't remember buying this. 
I woke up uh, one day and in the post came it and it turns out I was drunk in a car and on the way home I, I bought You've a piece of You've got to stop doing that when you're driving <laughs> home. Don't drink and drive and eBay. <laughs> so that's the first thing. So drummers love to sign a stick. I like when signatures are appropriate to an item. You know, right. This I found in a secondhand bookshop and I know I've shown you guys this before but for the listener what it is is a signed Stephen Hawking book. Now yeah. how would Stephen Hawking do his signature? Um, kiss, I was thinking, like put lipstick on him and kiss the. It's kind book. of close. It's not too far away. What they used to do was, is his assistant uh, would dip his thumb oh. into oh. some ink. So I have the thumbprint of Stephen Hawking, wow. and it says thumbprint of Stephen Hawking witnessed by Susan Maisie, who must have been um, oh. his assistant or nurse says, at the time. It says, "I never give my thumbprint out, <laughs> and I will not be doing so on this occasion." <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's quite cool. I found that for five quid in a second hand bookshop. Um, cool. Here's the last cool. one, which is uh, interesting. This is a baseball. Oh, yeah. Baseball signed by a Hall of Famer called Gaylord oh, Perry. Gaylord Perry, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. who is uh, someone I'm, I'm fascinated with, but we won't go into it now. But what's interesting about this is you can get baseballs that are worth more if they're signed in certain ways. So this this is worth more than most baseballs would be if he'd signed it differently. So can you guess why this is worth more? Signed by Gaylord Spelled Perry. Spelled his name wrong? Uh, no, no, correct um, spelling. So uh, he signed it, there are two seams, or rather there's one seam, isn't there, that goes all the way around. Yeah. And he signed it in the nice bow, beautifully between the point where the two seams are closer to each other. So that's the first thing, that's absolutely right. Okay. So this is what's known as the sweet spot of a baseball. You can get a long signature right across without having to break it up. Nothing right. gets in the way. The other thing is that it's a official ball American League, which is not the N, um, MLB. NLB, right? So this would be worth less because it's not official Major League Baseball. Right. So that shoots it down. It has his uh, details, Hall of Famer, 91 on it. Okay. So if anyone's a world champion, a World Series champion or whatever, if they add the detail, that's going to make it more. And then the How last many, thing... Like, if you put your name, address, phone number, <laughs> uh, Twitter handle, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it like, gets better and better. So there's one more thing. It's specifically to do with the signature that makes this worth more than a different baseball signature. Is it because it's blue? Absolutely. It, oh. It's blue ink. Blue ink. It looks nicer with the red seam. It will also stay on longer than black. Black will rub off according to the experts who auction oh, baseballs really? off. If I you have, have assigned um, American football by Colin Kaepernick. Oh, yeah. Um, which I got when he was an American footballer and now he's a civil rights guy, right? Right. Um, but it's signed in like um, silver writing. And to be honest, I'm not sure it'll last for another you know 10 years i think it'll all rub off yeah still it's so nice to get a signature where you can say i got it when he was american football and now he's a civil rights guy rather than now he's a pedophile and now he, now he's in prison for massive tax yeah. fraud <laughs> okay that's it that is all of our facts thank you so much for listening if you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast we can all be found on our twitter accounts i'm on at schreiberland andy at andrew hunter m james at james harkin and anna you can email podcast.qi.com yep or go to our group account which is at no such thing or our website no such thing as a fish.com all of our previous episodes are up there also check out the portal to club fish our secret little behind the scenes land where we add bonus content all the time and have lots of fans chatting to each other it's a great place check it out otherwise come back next week we'll be back with another episode we'll see you then goodbye